Hi guys, welcome back to Research Unpacked from Inform Performance. My name is Alistair McKenzie and I'm a sports physiotherapist from the UK. In our Research Unpacked episodes, we look to provide you with short and sharp research reviews, as well as the narratives and reasoning behind each publication straight from the authors themselves. On today's episode, we have part two with Dr. Andreas Heggy. Andreas is a postdoctoral researcher from the University of Nantes in France. And in part one, we discussed his first PhD publication on regional hamstring muscle activity during a Nordic hamstring curl and a stiff leg deadlift using high density electromyography. Today's episode, Andres expands on his publication with his follow-up study looking at regional activity during a variety of exercises. In this episode, we discuss not only the differences in exercises and how it might influence adaptation and exercise selection, but also the perspectives and complexity around interpreting research in this area, as well as future research ideas. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Andres Heggie. Andreas, thanks for coming back on the show. Um, in part one, we discussed your first paper using high-density MG on the hamstrings uh, using two exercises. And I believe this one is just a continuation of that where you look at multiple exercises. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So we found uh, quite large regional differences in the Nordic hamstring and a little smaller differences in the stiff leg deadlift exercise. So we were really interested to see whether we have regional differences in other exercises that are typically used for hamstrings and how this affects the intermuscular distribution of the EMG activity. Yeah, and just to provide some context for the listeners, uh, you separated the exercises into hip-dominant and knee-dominant biased, with the hip-dominant including things like the good morning, the Romanian deadlift or RDL, uh, the 45 degree hip extension, straight knee bridge, uh, an upright hip extension pulley and a cable pendulum. And then for the knee dominant or more knee dominant biased exercises, you looked at the bent knee bridge, prone leg curl and a sliding leg curl. Now, all of these uh, exercises depicted and explained within the paper for your listeners, but also key to understand is you looked at a different rep maximum scheme in this paper being a 12 rep max uh, compared to the five rep max for the previous work. Yeah, exactly. So in the first paper, we had only two exercises. Uh, one was uh, Nordic hamstring, which was kind of supramaximal exercise in terms of uh, eccentric load. And uh, the, the other exercise was five rep max, uh, concentric five rep, uh, which means that the load was not matched. So one aim here in this study was to match the load between exercises. So we did a 12 repetition maximum for each exercise, which is quite low, but uh, we also wanted to, to minimize fatigue. And we know about EMG that it's the most reliable if you measure on the same subjects in the same session. So that's the most reliable to compare different uh, exercises in this case. So that's what we did in, in this exercise, basically, or in, the, in this study. Yeah, and I think in part one, we discussed a lot about the methodological limitations or, or key considerations for interpreting EMG data. So I think, should we just jump straight to what you found in this paper and, and start with, okay, what did you observe with the overall muscle activity comparing across these exercises? Yeah, so it's it wasn't a big surprise that we found quite large differences between exercises. 
So it's quite similar to, to previous studies. Um, even though not all studies match the, the relative load between exercises, but even if you do it, you find, find uh, large differences. For example, it was quite low activation in the good morning or, or one leg Romanian deadlift or in the cable pendulum movements. Uh, the activation was the lowest. So it means that in the eccentric phase, it was like 20% of the maximal activation that was measured in a, a maximal isometric contraction. And in the concentric phase, it was like 30%. And what is quite common in, in these exercises is that the length of the muscle is quite, quite long. At least there is a, a large hip flexion uh, in the, in the movements. Uh, so it's it's already quite interesting that at a long muscle length, the activation is quite quite low in the hamstrings because in sprinting we also have a long muscle length in the late swing phase where injuries happen, but the activation is really high. Of course, we cannot directly compare exercises to sprinting, but uh, it's, it's still an interesting finding, I think. And we also know that uh, when the hips are, are largely flexed, then the, uh, the adductor magnus has a large moment arm. So it has a mechanical advantage uh, over other hip extensors to produce torque. So most likely the, the adductor magnus uh, takes over the, the load from the hamstrings in, in these exercises or uh, for most of the range, uh, range of motion in these exercises. And then for some other hip dominant exercises where the, the hip range of motion is closer to, to hip extension. So it's more restricted to the extended uh, hip position. Uh, then, then we have a much higher activation. For example, the highest activation was found in the straight knee bridge and the upright hip extension conic pulley. We also had quite high activation in the knee dominant uh, um, uh, slide leg curl. So the hip position is quite quite important, and also it's uh, it's important to com or interesting to compare the bent knee bridge to the straight knee bridge, because uh, also when you perform a hip extension, the knee position might be important. So when you have a more flexed position in the knee. Then, uh, then, then it's not very optimal for the hamstring. So it's mainly the, the gluteal muscles which will be activated. And when it's a more extended uh, knee position, like in the straight knee bridge, then you can achieve a high activation in the hamstring muscles. So uh, in terms of overall activation, uh, the in the eccentric phase for for the activation for for the exercises where the highest activation was achieved. Like in the eccentric phase, it was like 55%. In the concentric, it went up to 80, 85% of the MVIC. But again, it was just a, a submaximal load. Yeah, and generally we would expect muscle activity to, to increase as intensity or load increases, similar to the higher um, percentage of muscle activity seen in your previous study with the, with the straight leg deadlift at 80%, five rep max and the Nordic, which which is designed to be super maximal, right? Um, but if we're just talking about 
this generally to inform practice, we can say that uh, during the eccentric phase and at longer muscle lengths, uh, the muscle activity is lowest, like during the good morning and the RDL especially. But obviously this doesn't take into consideration the, the passive structures of the series elastic fragments or the, or the uh, force length curves. Um, and exercises with higher motor unit recruitment generally work in more end range hip extension, with, with, especially with a low knee flexion angle, like the straight knee bridge. So, you know, my bias as a physio being injury specific I've got some nice information there to, to inform my practice on exercise selection based on what adaptation or response I'm trying to achieve, um, either post-injury or in different phases of rehab or preventatively. Um, so I found that really interesting. And it's really interesting that you touched on the role of the adductor Magnus. Um, and we had James Moore on the main show um, a while ago, and he talks about that the role of the adductor um, during sprinting and and with regards to hamstring strain injury. So definitely uh, direct people to listen to that episode because he goes into so much detail as always. But if we were to go into the next layer of your study then, mate, and um, what difference did you find between muscles uh, during these different exercises? Well, it was quite fascinating that the differences between muscles were quite small. And uh, in the eccentric phase, we found no difference in any exercises. But in the concentric phase, we had uh, higher biceps activation than semitendinosus activation in the 45 degree hip extension. So it's like a hip extension on a Roman chair. And uh, in the prone leg curl exercise, we had higher activation in the semitendinosus than in the biceps femoris. So it's also similar to, to previous findings. So, um, but even though the, the differences are quite small, it's really hard to say if this is uh, meaningful from a practical perspective, because uh, we can see like the intervention, intervention study of uh, Matthew Bourne, who, who had uh, one group with uh, this uh, hip extension on the Roman chair, another group with uh, with Nordic hamstring exercise, which is supposed to be semitendinosus dominant. Uh, and they, they indeed found uh, like muscle-specific adaptations to the exercises. Yeah, and I'm familiar with the study. And I think what they found um, was that, that both exercises um, can increase fascicle length, but the 45-degree hip extension um, may produce greater hypertrophy changes. Um, at the bicep in the biceps femoris which kind of fits what what you're saying with the contraction dynamics of these exercises with the with the increased muscle activity during the concentric phase which uh, you know we would assume would drive hypertrophy um, but I guess what you're saying is as always more longitudinal studies are needed to 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 observe this um, but I guess again from my perspective you know and bias as a physio if I'm thinking about hamstring strains I know that the location of the strain matters and, and from this I can bias my exercise selection to, to target different responses and biases towards different muscles. So I think, I think it's really interesting. Um, I think the next layer then is, is what, are there any regional differences within, within these muscles? Yeah, so importantly, we had quite large differences between regions in, in some exercises. So we can start probably with the semitendinosus. So 
uh, it was quite homogeneous for, for the hip extension exercises. Basically, uh, the only exercise where it wasn't was the, was the bent knee bridge exercise, which is more like combined hip extension, knee flexion. You also have some knee flexion moment there. Um, so it was quite homogeneous there. Uh, but in the in the knee dominant exercises, so prone leg curl, slide leg curl, and also in the bent knee bridge, we had higher activation in the proximal and middle regions than in the distal region. Um, so it was like, for example, for the prone leg curl, it was like 85% in the proximal region, 85% of MVC, and 65 in the distal region. So it's a quite large difference. Uh, I think. And it's quite interesting now to interpret these results because uh, we have some new publications. So there is a new study showing, or there are some studies showing recently that the semitendinosus is quite important for sprinting. Uh, so the relative volume of the semitendinosus is larger in sprinters than in, in non-sprinters uh, compared to other muscles uh, and other hamstrings. And one study shows that it's especially true for the distal region of the muscle. So one might think that for sprinting, you might want to focus on the distal region of the semitendinosus, which seems to be challenging, but uh, it's definitely not optimal to target the distal region with knee dominant exercises, because we had relatively low activation in, in those exercises. And for the biceps femoris, um, we had the largest regional differences in the prone leg curl exercise. And uh, it was quite similar to the Nordic hamstring exercise, and they, they, also, they are also quite similar uh, mechanically. And for most exercises in the, in the eccentric phase, uh, we found lower activation in the proximal region than in the middle or distal regions in the biceps femoris, which is quite interesting because we had we have most hamstring injuries also in the proximal region. So it might be a question whether is it because we cannot prepare the hamstrings, the proximal region to, to the demands of high speed running, or is it something that's actually good? Because there is one study showing that the, the thickness of the muscle in the proximal region relative to the uh, thickness of the aponeurosis, so the ratio between the two, is an actual risk factor. So if you have two large hamstrings in the proximal region or biceps femoris in the proximal region relative to the uh, aponeurosis thickness, that's an actual risk factor. So it might be actually a good thing that we, we don't really activate uh, the proximal region. And if we don't gain so uh, like superior adaptations in, in the muscle in the proximal region, but it's also important to mention that if you activate the muscle, then you might also gain adaptations in the, in the tendon. So uh, it's just, uh, th these are the results, but it's really difficult to interpret them without uh, actual intervention studies especially because the the injury mechanism is so complex. Yeah, and I think you've highlighted some really interesting uh, points and, and perspectives there uh, that, that highlight the complexity of this area. And I think 
uh, yeah, that's why a lot of effort goes into understanding the, the the key contributors to sprint performance as you are now and the mechanisms of injury uh, and the risk factors, which I think as we understand in more depth will we'll give more meaning or clinical meaning to these kinds of studies. But we can say that uh, at, at these loads, at least, that some of these exercises may not be adequate to, to stimulate, stimulate adaptation in, in the key areas like the distal semitendinosis for, for performance potentially in the proximal biceps femoris for, from an injury perspective. Um, but what, what really interests me there is you talking around the, the perspectives of what we're trying to achieve, right? And, and it reminded me of um, an article by Sherman's, or I hope I'm pronouncing that, that right, and, and he published an article on the uh, intramuscular coordination between the semitendinosis and the biceps femoris and um, found that you know injured footballers have more of a symmetrical distribution of muscle activity across the two whereas healthy players had a larger but uh, a larger contribution of semitendinosis um, describing it as like a trade-off in muscle activation uh, following an injury um, but I'd be really interested to understand your or, or, or to know your perspectives around this area yeah exactly so it's it's a very interesting study and uh, there are at least two other studies from the same uh, for another group uh, both published by, by Simon Avrion. Uh, one study showed that uh, at least in submaximal knee flexion, uh, if you have a more uh, homogeneous distribution of activation between muscles, then, then you fatigue later. So what they found, if you have more uh, imbalance between muscles, which could be like higher semitendinosus activation, then it means that semitendinosus will fatigue quite fast and then it's it's not very uh, helpful when you want to prevent injuries. So there are some contradictory studies. And uh, also in a, another study from this group showed that indeed after hamstring injury, uh, the distribution of activation or distribution of, of torque sharing is what they calculated uh, is also changes and uh, what they found is that the contribution of the biceps femoris is lower after the injury and this is actually compensated by the semimembranosus and not the semitendinosus but this is also just during a submaximal knee flexion so it can be like completely different in sprinting because the function of the muscle is different and it, between between hamstring muscles, we have large differences in in terms of uh, uh, architecture. So, for example, the the semimembranosus it has very large uh, pendation angle and short fascicles, but the semitendinosus has very long fascicles and it's a fusiform muscle. So, in sprinting, it may be that the the load goes towards semitendinosus because that's what you uh, like you use more in sprinting, but in in a submaximal knee flexion where the, basically it's just force production and doesn't need to be at high velocity, then it's uh, more like the semimembranosus that you use. So it's very difficult to generalize these kind of findings uh, to sprinting. That's my my point of view basically on this. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you've given like a mini critical appraisal of that research topic there, which is fantastic. Um, and I think what you highlighted for me is that context is king and, and 
muscle activation of or, or demands during sprinting may be very different and not directly relate uh, relatable to to these submaximal movements that are often seen in research um and i think again that that really complements uh like richard lieber's work who again james moore references a lot on the the role of muscle function based on architecture um and also to to consider uh, velocity as a as a key determinant that will influence muscle activation yes but this is uh just uh based on the, the theory and we don't have a lot of data so what we try to do now in our lab is to compare the distribution of activation within and between hamstring muscles at different velocities of hip extensions to, sh- to see if the actual velocity affects which muscle you activate the most. Because it, it might be reasonable to, to believe that at high velocities you favor semitendinosus. Yeah, that's cool. And how far in are you into that project? Uh, we just started the project, so it's uh, very, very early doors. It's ongoing, but yeah, quite early. Yeah, well, when you've published that one, we'll uh, we'll get you back on the show. <laughs> um, but just going back to these this paper, and I'm just interested really in the mechanics um, behind why you might see some of these changes in regional activity. I know you've touched on it briefly with changes in hip and knee angle but are there any other um, mechanical determinants that that we might influence our practice when when looking at exercises and, and what target areas we're going after um, in terms of uh, regional activation it's very difficult to say uh, but uh, some studies show that some uh, some re- like uh, certain regions may be responsible for certain movements in some muscles but it's not very well explored in the hamstrings. In terms of overall activation, we know that the the hip position has a large effect. So if it's more extended, you will uh, uh, increase hamstring activation or uh, the knee position, if it's more extended, then you will increase uh, hamstring activation compared to a more flexed knee position. And what is also important and it was not discussed in this paper is that the range of motion might also affect uh, which which muscle you activate so the intermuscular distribution can also change Uh, for example if it's more some some studies using like dynamometry show that if you are closer if you do a knee flexion exercise and you are closer to extended knee position then it favors biceps femoris. And if it's closer to a more like flexed position, then it favors semitendinosus. Yeah, and I think that comes up in part three, where we look at your your next study, which looks at changes in hip angle during a Nordic and, it, and the effect on uh, muscle activity and knee, knee talk, which is a gr- another great article. Um, but I guess with regards to, to more research, um, what are the kind of areas for future research? What, what direction for future research? Obviously, intervention studies and I guess comparing the, the difference in ha- hamstring muscle activity between injured and, and non-injured cohorts would be one of the next steps to go, right? Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's very important to note that these were just non-injured uh, individuals in our study. And in all of the studies we discussed, these were amateur athletes. So we cannot 
necessarily generalized to other populations, especially after a hamstring injury. We know that that the distribution of the activation might change. Um, and also the, these uh, athletes never had a hamstring injury. So we don't know if certain uh, like activation patterns may predispose to, to hamstring injury. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in combining these two uh, articles that you've done involving the, the stiff leg deadlift, the Nordic, and these other exercise variations, which are all common in, in strength and conditioning programs, rehab programs. Um, but if we were to think of them progressively um, to try and construct programs and, and implement things at, at different exercises at different times what are the other considerations that you need to uh, consider um, around these kind of exercises yeah well definitely if you if you increase the load then you will you will have higher activation so uh, if if you look at the first paper in nordic hamstring exercise where we had supramaximal load we had a higher activation as compared to the prone leg curl in the in the second study which is mechanically similar but it was performed only at 12 repetition maximum so one driver of of adaptations might be the activation of the muscle but uh, if we think about adaptations and this may not relate to your to your question sorry if it's if it's not but uh uh, it's also interesting to mention that uh, like some of the exercises show very low activation, but it doesn't mean that it's not uh, advantageous for hamstring injury prevention. So, for example, if you look at the exercises that are, are used in the asklings L or lengthening protocol, like the diver and, and glider exercises and uh, the extensions, so these are like exercises at long muscle length, but very low activation, they still still seem to be efficient in, in preventing injuries, uh, uh, re-injuries. Uh, so uh, it's, it, it, it's possible that they work through different mechanisms, but uh, it's not only the magnitude of the activation, which may uh, like... Uh, uh, prevent the injury basically no I, th- I think it does contribute to the to the question i think it comes down to understanding what what adaptation you're trying to achieve whether you're trying to influence fascicle length hypertrophy the contractile or non-contractile tissue the tendon stiffness all this stuff comes into play when you're, you're clinically reasoning your exercise prescription and another plug for the, the the podcast but uh we had alex wolf on the show a while ago and he talks a lot about adaptation-led programming he's a great great presenter um so again I, I, i'll push people towards that but my next um my next question is really if you were to follow this up with a longitudinal study what what would be next yeah so a next step from from this now that we see that the distribution is uneven within the muscle it's it's heterogeneous it would be quite interesting to see how this relates to to regional hypertrophy or for example how how the like for example the the ratio between the muscle thickness and tendon thickness how it changes with uh, interventions 
Uh, also, we are interested in fascicle lengthening uh, to lengthen the fascicles so that they can absorb more energy in the late swing phase of sprinting. And, uh, and some studies show that uh, with Nordic hamstring exercise, you can actually increase the, the length of the fascicles. But um, it would be interesting to see if it's different between muscle regions. For example, there is a small study a uh, few weeks uh, long intervention uh, with Nordic hamstring exercise recently published, which uh, measured fascicle length and sarcomy adaptations in the biceps femoris in response to the Nordic hamstring exercise. And what they found is that the, the fascicle lengthening, uh, so uh, after the intervention, they had longer fascicles in the distal region of the muscle, but not in the middle region of the muscle. So, and also we see the largest activation in the distal region. Uh, so it might be that it also affects the regional distribution also affects these, these adaptations that are, that seem to be important from an injury perspective, but we have very little data to support this at this point, because it's quite a new, new, uh, research field, but, uh, I would definitely step towards uh, intervention studies from here. Yeah, and that brings us nicely to the end of part two. And, and thanks again, Andreas, for coming on the show. And in part three, we're going to discuss uh, Andreas's next paper, which looks at variations of the Nordic uh, and considers knee flexion torque alongside muscle activity. And again, similar to this episode, it has lots of little clinical um, pearls in there that you can use to inform your practice when it comes to progressive exercise prescription so i really hope you enjoyed this episode and and you hope you're looking forward to the next part with andreas heggie